Well, last week we finished up our, our eight weeks on the culture of Living Hope Family Church as we talked about who we are as a church. And you remember that the last uh, couple weeks we talked about multiplication and, and uh, replication in the church. And then more specifically, last week we talked about uh, being personal evangelists, basically replicating uh, within ourselves so we can share the gospel with others, personal evangelism. And we talked about how that's an important part of building the church because it is each and every one of our responsibility to share the gospel with other people. And as, we, as I told you last week, I want to talk about today what actually is the gospel. Because I was sitting out with the youth a few weeks ago, and, and uh, John was telling me that he, he took the kids out, and they were, they were going out there, and they were knocking on doors, and, and awesome for those kids getting out there and having the courage to do that and sharing with people. And they were saying they wanted to share the gospel. They were talking about Jesus, and then someone asked them, well, what is the gospel? And everybody went, you know. And, that, and it's not that they don't know what the gospel is. They just don't know it specifically as the gospel, so they, they kind of choked up. And I, I came to realize that two things. One is that when we talk to them, they actually do know what the gospel is. But they just didn't. We, we've never, what I realized is we've never really taught it succinctly. We've never said this is the gospel. They've never made it, had it made plain to them. And I said, well, that's something that we're going to have to have to fix and take care of. But then as we were in prayer last week, Kathy was praying and she said something that kind of that hit me. She said, Lord, please don't let us misrepresent the gospel. And I came to realize is that that is something that's incredibly easy to do. It's easy to misrepresent the gospel to those around us. As a matter of fact, if you, if you look around with what's going on today, it's being misrepresented everywhere. Do you know the term gospel is found 120 times in the English Standard Version translation of the Bible? It's actually found 99 times in the New American Standard. And it's from the, the, the noun. Let's see, this is, I got my pastor here when I'm trying to pronounce Greek words. Close your ears in case I mispronounce these, all right? Evangelion, is that right? Evangelion, Evangelion. All right, we're, we're going to go with that. <laughs> and that, that means good news. There's another word that's used, evangelizo, which is used, means to bring or announce good news. And these are the words that are used to translate the gospel in the New Testament. And then it says both words are derived from the noun angelos, which means messenger in the classical Greek. And an evangelos was one who brought a message of victory or other political or personal news that caused joy. And these are the things we need to start remembering when we hear the word gospel. What does the gospel actually mean? It's, it's an announcement of what kind of news? Good news. Amen. In addition... Evangelizomai, the middle voice form of the verb, means to speak as a messenger of gladness to proclaim good news. And it basically, that, that became the technical term, what, what it meant to bring uh, the, the message of hope that is in Jesus Christ. That was the gospel. That was what was used to represent the gospel. Is we are messengers of good news and we are sharing good news. And what I began to realize is in the world, when people proclaim the gospel, a lot of times it's not really good news. You ever notice that? I remember I was going to the U- University of Arizona, and they have that big mall, the big grass area in the middle of everything. And there was this guy that would stand out there, and he would scream at the top of his lungs, and he would tell people that they were going to hell and that they were sinners. And, they, and it was, it was, he was spitting out all kinds of awful things. Now, I want to be clear. He didn't say anything wrong. He was telling the truth. If they weren't saved, this was a fact. But that's not how we're supposed to share the gospel. What we're supposed to do is tell people that, that even though that may be true, hey, i got good news for you. It doesn't have to stay 
that way. And I remember it used to drive me crazy. I wasn't even that uh, diligent a Christian at the time. We'll use that term. And, uh, and it still irritated me that they would say that because even then I, I, I knew that wasn't right. And it was just alienating people and pushing them away from the gospel. And Hugo, as we were in the men's meeting yesterday, if, you were, if you're a man and you weren't there, you missed out. But uh, he was telling me that, the, you guys know what happened in Orlando? There was the shooting. Some guy went up there and shot up uh, a, a gay club and a bunch of people. A bunch. I think it was last week we were talking about it. Fifty-something people died on the scene, and there was 50-something more in critical condition. And there was some pastor that, that got up and said he was glad that that happened. And then, to make it worse, he went on to say that he believes that the government should round up all homosexuals in a firing squad and just kill them all. And what drove me crazy is this is the pastor standing up and saying this. He is a, a representative of Jesus Christ. He's supposedly, he's supposedly a representative of the gospel. And that doesn't sound like very good news to me. He said, he also went on to say that if, if, if you commit that particular sin, then you are, it is impossible for you to be saved. And I, I looked, it's, that's not in the scripture anywhere. It is so easy and see, these are the, the, the extreme cases, right? But it really is so easy to misrepresent the gospel because how many times have you heard it preached accidentally or maybe intentionally that, that oh, if, if you're not coming to church, then you're messing up. You know, you're not saved anymore until the next time you come. And, and we preach works. And it's so easy to slip into preaching those kind of things for salvation when salvation is completely a gift. It's by grace. In Galatians 1, 6 through 8, it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So this makes it seem to me that preaching the right gospel is, is pretty important. So we need to, we need to, to have our... Our, our I's dotted and our T's crossed, if you will, as we're sharing the gospel, because we want to make sure that we're not misrepresenting the gospel when we go out into the world. Amen? So as we get started, let's look at what the gospel is, according to Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-8, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. So here Paul lays out the basics of the gospel. First is that Jesus lived and then he died. Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the first point is Jesus did live. He was a real person. He lived. And then he died for our sins. And he talks about here, he says that, that he died and was buried. And that burial right there was evidence that he died. You don't bury someone that's alive. Jesus really died for you and I. And then he goes on to say that Jesus rose again. And he rose again so that, that not only would we be forgiven, but we would have newness of life. And then we rose with him in a newness of life. And that was evidenced by the fact that he was seen by the apostles and 500 plus disciples. And then Paul basically 
it, it wasn't, uh, nobody was, was confused whether Jesus rose again. Everybody knew he rose again back then. Nowadays, people want to say, no, it didn't really happen, all these things. But nobody was confused back then because if anybody said otherwise, they could say, no, I was there. I, I saw him. There was no confusion back then whether Jesus rose again. And then finally, I think we need to understand it's important that salvation is a gift. Salvation cannot be earned. We can't do anything for it. And if we ever teach that intentionally or unintentionally, we are misrepresenting the gospel because salvation comes through grace. Amen? So the one thing that I wanted to talk about before we got into all this is is we have to establish that there is a real need for the gospel. In Romans 3, 10 through 12, it says, As it is written, no... None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So who does good? No one. So that's something that we have to, to keep, uh, so we have to keep that in the top of our mind when we're, when we're understanding why there's even a need for the gospel. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of glory of God. That's all once again. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, just in case you thought this was a, a new idea that all of a sudden in the New Testament people couldn't be good, but before then they could. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And that's one of those when you read that and you're like, wow, did you, did you come up with that all by yourself, Solomon? Because that's kind of obvious as we look at the word, at the world. But before we get into what the gospel actually is, I think we need to understand that there is a need for the gospel. Matter of fact, if you don't believe or understand that there's a need for the gospel, what would make you want to share it with anyone anyway? What would be the point? Because truthfully, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to go and speak to people about Jesus. Mainly because they'll make it that way for you. And actually, really mainly, it's all in our own head. We think something's going to happen that never does. But the ultimate truth is this, is that we are all sinners. We are in all in need of of a Savior. And we're not right with God. And it's not a new thing, Old Testament and New Testament. Since Adam fell, every single person needs to be made right with God. And that's the difference between every other religion and Christianity, is every other religion is a list of rules about how you can get right with God, how you can somehow make things right yourself. But the reality is, is that that can't be done. That's an impossible situation. We cannot make ourselves right again. And there's a real need for the gospel in this world because I don't know if you remember before you were saved, but I remember, I didn't know exactly what it was, but I, I yearned for something. I knew there was something missing. There was a hole inside of me and I was looking to fill that in all different kinds of ways. And I, I knew there was something missing, and, but I didn't know what it was. And you can tell I didn't know what it was if you saw the things I was trying to fill it with because those things... They never filled what was missing in my heart. There was always that big, giant hole there. And, and any, any, any gratification that I got from that was so temporary, the next day it had to be done again because there was nothing lasting in what I was searching for. The reality is, is that most people don't need to be told that they're not right with God. And we know that there's reconciliation required. Stephen Curtis Chapman said this, he said, In the gospel we discover we are far worse off than we thought, but we are far more loved than we ever dreamed. You know, when you, when you have the gospel told you, and, and we begin to realize that there is no other way, we can't do it ourselves. I wonder if that's why people are so resistant, as they begin to, to have what they already knew inside confirmed, that 
They can't do it on their own. And the truth is, is there's a, a great chasm that separates us from God. It's like, do you remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? And the rich man was saying, Abraham, can I get across to you? And he said, there's a giant chasm that separates us. There's nothing that can get you across to me. And I thank God that that's not the truth because we have Jesus. And Jesus is the only thing that can bring us across to the other side. And it's the, the great news about it is that God doesn't love us for the things that we've done. How I many you know that's good news, that God doesn't love you for the things that you've done? Matter of fact, he loves you in spite of the things that you've done, which is even better news because the good things that I've done probably outweigh the bad, the hurt that I've caused in my own life. But I thank God that I can be uh, free from and even have a clean conscience of that because Jesus paid the price for that. And people need peace, and people need restoration. There's a whole world of people walking out there whose hearts are hurting, they're broken, they're looking for something. Some of them know they're looking for some of them, some of them don't even know. And Christian, your heart should hurt for them. When you look out and see them, when we see the the people in, in Orlando that were killed, we shouldn't look at what they were doing and begin to condemn them, but our hearts should hurt because their opportunity to receive Christ has not been removed from them. And the truth is, that's the same for anybody out there. That was a big event. We know what happened. But the truth is, is that we don't know when anybody walking out in our city, our city of Miranda, when is going to be their last breath. And this is a time-sensitive issue, sharing the gospel with them. The love of Christ should compel us to reach out and share with his people the need something that we already have. They need it so desperately, and we have it, and we can share it with them. This is the reason for the gospel. This is the reason Jesus came and died for us. Because these things are all true. None of these are the gospel. If this is what you're sharing with people as your, your opening line, you're not doing it right. You're, you're going to alienate people. This is the same thing as those people that would, that would spew fire and brimstone from them all. Instead, begin to share that God has something better for them. That, that God has given everything so they could be made right with him. Because this is the reason for the gospel. And man is incapable of rectifying this situation on his own. Because this kind of problem, this kind of hopeless and impossible situation needs a supernatural resolution. Amen? So as we looked at these things here, Jesus lived and he died. As we get into that, we're going to look at a few points here that Jesus did live. In 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This verse kind of describes the work of Jesus in a nutshell. One, in order for Jesus to die for us, we have to know that he lived for us. This isn't a, uh, uh, a point of confusion. Like I said, everybody back then knew that he lived and, and that he died. And actually, back then, it wasn't even a point of contention that he rose again because people saw it. There was eyewitnesses. But even today, secular and, and non-secular historians alike understand and agree that Jesus lived. I mean, that's not a point of contention, that Jesus lived. It says right here that he was manifested in the flesh. You know what the main point of contention is concerning Jesus? It's not that he lived. Everybody knows that he lived. 
It's who he was. Was he just a man? Anybody ever? He was just a good man. Was he a prophet? Some people claim he was just a prophet. Some people, he was just bonkers. But the question we have to make and ask ourselves and come to the realization is, is was he who he claimed to be? The reality is, is that Jesus didn't leave us another option. He said that I am the Son of God. And he didn't give us another option. He was either the Son of God or he was crazy or he was a liar. That's our three options. We can't say he was just a good man. He didn't leave us that option. Then it goes on to say he was vindicated by the Spirit because he, he rose by, by God uh, rising him from the dead. That, that proved that he was who he said he was. If Jesus was just some other man claiming these things, if he would have never been risen from the dead, then we can all agree he was a liar or he was bonkers. He was crazy. But he wasn't. He was risen from the dead, which proved that he lived. It says he was seen by angels because he is exalted above all. Hebrews 1.6 says, and again when he brings the firstborn of the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. He was proclaimed among the nations, first by the apostles and then by us now. We proclaim Jesus Christ. He is believed on in the world. As we can see now, this is uh, one of the largest religions in the world because he's continued to be believed on day after day. And then he was taken up in glory, his ascension into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he sits because it is finished. Amen? And then not only did he live, but he lived a sinless life. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Why is this important? Why is it important that Jesus lived without sin? Because the only way that we could be reconciled to a holy and perfect God is with a holy and perfect in 1 Peter 1, 18-19, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, in the Old Testament, when they would give sacrifices for sin, it required a lamb that had no blemish, that was, that was perfect as far as lambs go. And the same thing with Jesus. He was the perfect lamb of God. And I love that we, we see this about Jesus, that he lived without sin, but it also says that he was tempted in every way as we are. And that just blows me away because I haven't been tempted in every way that man's been tempted, but I've been tempted in enough and failed in enough to know that, it, that to, to make it through all of them is, is a pretty impressive feat. And that's why Jesus can sympathize with us because he knows what you're going through. He knows what the people of this world are going through. He gets it. And that's why we can draw near the throne of grace because he understands. And he doesn't respond with judgment but with grace and mercy, which I would argue with you is the same way that we should respond to those who are living in ways that they shouldn't. You're crazy if you expect non-believers to act like Christians. They're not Christians. But as a Christian, you should still love them. So next we need to know that the next part of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for us. Hebrews 7.27 says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. In Hebrews 10.10 it says, And by that we will have been 
sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The reality is that there is a penalty for sin. And you don't actually have to tell people that. People instinctually know that there's a penalty for sin. That's why we have a conscience. That's why people in this world understand they have a sense of justice. We, We get that there's a penalty for sin, for living in those ways. And the scripture makes it clear as well in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But God is good. God is righteous. And God is holy. God is perfect. The scripture says that he is light in him. There is no darkness. Darkness and light cannot coexist. Holiness and perfectness cannot coexist with stuff that is not. And as a just God, he cannot just sweep our sin under the rug. You know, many people would argue that aren't Christians. They'll say, how can, how can God send people to hell? How can you do these things? And one of the realities is he doesn't send anybody to hell. They choose to go. He made provision for everybody. They choose to go there themselves so they don't make it. But the reality is, is that he's a perfect and just God. And as such, we can't just, he just can't sweep it under the rug. He can't just turn his back and ignore it. And the interesting thing is that we actually all understand this perfectly well. Even people that argue that, that he, God shouldn't be like that, if he's a good God, he wouldn't do those things, they still understand justice. They understand. I mean, that's why we have a legal system today. That's why that there's, there's laws and there's rules, and if you break them, there's penalty. Everybody gets justice. And for justice to be done, there's always a penalty to be paid for the crime that's committed. Amen? That's why you guys have been, have you guys been following the story of Brock Turner and, and the whole uh, uh, Stanford rape thing that was going on right now? He, he, was, a, he was a swimmer, and he, he uh, uh, took advantage of some young girl, and he got caught by a couple of uh, Swedish bicyclists who chased him down, and he gets arrested, and they go to court and do the whole thing. And, and, and uh, in the end, he gets sentenced to six months probation or something, six months in jail and probation. It was, it was an incredibly light sentence. And the community is in uproar about this because he fundamentally changed this girl's life. For the rest of her life, she is not going to be the same. And he gets a six-month sentence. And why do people get so upset about that? Because it violates their sense of justice. They recognize that what happened is not a, it does not cover the cost of what happened. It, this is a light sentence. People understand justice. And there's nothing different about that with God. He's a just God and this stuff has to be dealt with. So how does God make us right with Him yet still remain just? The penalty for sin has got to be paid. There's no getting around that. The law has to be fulfilled. There's no, there's no side way around. So He sent His Son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for us. The price had to be paid. It's like the story of the, of the, the judge who had a real close friend when they were growing up, and they, they both grew up, and the one became a judge, and the other one was speeding through the town, and he, he got a, a, a criminal speeding ticket. And he gets brought before the judge, and everybody there expected the friend, the judge, they all knew they were friends, they expected him to just give him a light sentence or just push him under the rug. And they were all shocked to see when he, in essence, threw the book at him. He held him accountable for every crime that he committed. But the interesting thing was, is right after he did that. He, he got down off the bench and he took his robe off and he pulled out his wallet and he paid the price himself. 
That's basically what God did. He still upheld the law. He still kept a sense of justice, but then he paid the penalty himself when he sent his son to die for us. God came down himself in the flesh and gave his life for us. And he did this for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 8, 12 says, For I will be merciful toward their inequities, and I will remember their sins no more. And then one of my favorite verses, because of the picture it paints, is Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as we remove our transgression from us. You see, we have been delivered, and we have been forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And there is no sin that cannot be forgiven, save one, regardless of what that pastor says or what other people say. There's only one sin that can be forgiven, and that's not receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior before you die. You have until then. Every other sin can be forgiven. Can murder be forgiven? Absolutely. Can homosexuality be forgiven? Absolutely. Can abortion be forgiven? Yes. Lying, yes. Cheating, yes. Stealing, yes. Killing, yes. All of those things, they're all sin, and they can all, they're, they're all paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. The reality is, is that we classify sin as being differently. We, we figure that murder is worse than lying or stealing. And in reality, in a, in, a, in a social system, it is. It has a much higher consequence. Murder has a much higher consequence to the individual than lying to them. But as far as God's concerned, it's all, it's all sin. It all separates us from Him. It's that darkness that can't coexist with the light. It all has to be dealt with. But in Jesus, we're forgiven. He says that I will remember their sins no more because they've been paid. The price has been paid. And like I said, Psalm 103.12, it's my favorite verse. One of my favorite verses is the picture it paints because it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does it remove our transgressions from us. You know, if you look at a globe and you start going north, you'll eventually start going south. Eventually, you hit the pole and you'll be going south. And if you start on the globe and you start going south, you'll eventually hit the pole and you'll start going north. You can't always go south and you can't always go north. You'll eventually hit the other. But when you go east to west, you can continue going east infinite around. And you can continue going west infinite around. And it's amazing to me because... This was, I, I don't know how much understanding they had of the globe and how it works and how all this stuff works, but God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said the east from the west because God understood how it works. And they never touch. If you go east and you go, you go west, you keep going east always and you keep going west always. It, our sin is removed from us an infinite distance because it's not ours anymore. And Jesus took it upon himself. Amen. The next part of the gospel is that he rose again. How many know the forgiveness of our sins was good? We needed our sins forgiven. But did you also know that wouldn't have been enough? If he would have just forgiven our sins, we would still be right where we were when we started. But it didn't stop there because Jesus rose again. Romans 6, 6 through 11 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Death took care of sin so that we might no longer need to be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. He rose again, and we rose again with him. We are alive to Christ. And that old self, the, the, the person that you were, the one that was bound to sin, is, is dead and gone if you're in Christ. Because as soon as you receive him, that old man dies and is buried with him. And then you rise again in newness of life. It's actually what the picture of baptism is. is we're being buried with, with, with Jesus. We're put under the water. We're buried with him. And then we rise out. We rise out in newness of life. We are not who we used to be. When you receive Jesus Christ, a miracle takes place inside of you. It's not, just a, it's not just a symbolic gesture. When you receive Jesus, you are changed fundamentally on the inside. And when something is dead, it has no influence over you at all. And if you don't believe me, we were talking about in Bible study, uh, Joseph, what was the name of that, uh, uh, the, the guy who died and then he came back to life and he had all kinds of issues with the government because they thought he was dead? Well, yeah. He had all kinds of, he had a mess because they, they said he was dead. He's like, no, I'm alive. You can see that I'm alive. So the problem is when you're dead to something, you have no influence in it. If the world says you're dead and they send you a, a, a death certificate, you, you have no more interaction with this world. And the same is true with sin. If, us, if we're dead to sin, sin has no power. It has no control. It has no response. It has nothing in our life. And the good news is that our old man dies, but it is replaced with a newness of life in Jesus Christ. Amen. And then it, the best part of that is that we are free from sin. You know, when we, when we get saved and we're born again, some people take this the idea that we're actually free to sin. But we're not free to sin. We're free from sin. And Romans 6, 16 through 18, it says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. This is a verse that always confused me when I used to read it. Because I get the slave to sin part. You're a slave to sin. It controls what you, what you do. And, and the thing is, when you're a slave to sin, it just it results in only further sinning and lawlessness. Because it has control of it. It's, it's, it. It causes you to do all kinds of stupid stuff. Even if in your mind you don't want to do them, when you're enslaved to it, you don't have a choice. And you're looking for something to fulfill you, but it only results in more searching, more impurity, and more sinning. But however now, because of the gospel, because of Jesus... We can present ourselves as a slave to righteousness. And this is what always confused me. I didn't have any idea what that meant, slaves to righteousness. That doesn't even make any sense to me until I began to realize and take a look at what it meant to be a slave. Because when you are a slave, particularly if, if you're, anything you're a slave to controls your actions, it controls your life. If you were a slave hundreds of years ago, you would have to ask to do everything. If you wanted to eat, if you wanted to sleep, if you wanted to use the restroom, whoever was, was your master gave you the permission to do all these things, and you did whatever you were told by your master. And the same is true when we're slaves to sin, because it controls everything that we do in our life. But that same principle applies to righteousness. When you're a slave to righteousness, what that means is that righteousness controls everything that you do in your life. 
That means it causes you to live a righteous life. It causes, when righteousness is your master, then what you are capable and allowed to do is righteous things. Amen? And the truth is, as mature believers, we should put just as much effort into living righteously as we did into living sinfully. And I, I know I can look back in my life, and I was, I was good at living sinfully. And I did everything I could to live that kind of life because I thought that was the answer. I thought that was what was fun. I thought that was what was going to make everything okay. And, and in hindsight, I realize now that I was searching for something that's been fulfilled in Jesus. And I, I, we were just at the uh, walk in downtown yesterday. We were doing a walk around downtown. And I, I hate going downtown because it reminds me of a life that I would just as soon forget. I hate going through those areas. I don't want to, to deal with that stuff anymore. Because I remember the life I used to live in, and I'm so thankful that I've been freed from that nonsense and that junk. But I believe as Christians, we should make it our goal to be as good as a Christian as we were a sinner. Amen. And in Galatians six fourteen through 15, it says, But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is another thing that just blows me away. Because we talked about earlier, being forgiven of sins is a good thing. And it's important. We had to be forgiven of sin. But if we were just been forgiven of sin, we'd still be in the same boat that we always were. It's the same reason the law didn't work. Because it told people how they were supposed to live, but it didn't give them the means and the ability to live in that way because they were broken. They were, they were in bondage to sin. They were slaves to sin. But when we rose up with Jesus Christ, we were made a brand new person. And this person, this new, new spirit that you have inside of you, which is the spirit of Jesus, lived a sinless life. It, is, it has that ability. You're no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And we have that ability. Like I said, when you are born again, a miracle takes place inside of you and you're made brand new and you can finally live the life that you've been called to live. So not only are you forgiven, not only are you made pure, but you're finally able to live the sin-free life that you have been given. That's what people are going through right now out in the world. There are some who are just doing stupid stuff because that's, that's their character at the moment. And they haven't had somebody invest or speak in their life or maybe they've heard and they just don't care. But there are many out there who want to do the right thing they want to, but they don't understand how. And every time, failure and deep shame is always just around the corner because they're still a slave to sin. And that's what we're sharing, people, is the good news of that, that you don't have to be wrapped up in who you used to be. You don't have to be stuck where you were before. God has made provision for you to be brand new, to not only be right with him, but to be the person that he wanted you to be. And this is just the beginning. Because as a result of this new life, we're victorious. We're made perfect in him. We're made pure. We're made holy. And sometimes it takes a little while for our lives to catch up with the reality of our spirit. But that's who we are in Him. You are whole. And we looked at Jesus lived and He died for our sins and He rose again and He gave us newness of life. 
And the last thing that I think is uh, something that we have to drive home is that it's a free gift. Romans 6.23, we looked at this briefly earlier, the wages of sin is death, but the next part of that verse says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. And John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. These are all aspects of being one. Is it makes it very clear that salvation is a gift, and this one it says that all who did receive him, that's the only thing you have to do for a gift is receive it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. Pastor Mike came in today, and he, he brought me a, a, a gift bag, and he, he handed it to me. And I, I just received it. I, I received a free gift from Pastor Mike. And I didn't have to do anything for it. He didn't make me jump around on one foot or do handstands or push-ups, which is good because I may not have been able to do enough that he might have required. I mean, one or two push-ups were good to go, but, uh, you know, anything more than that, you know, we're, I'm not in the army anymore. I, I but he, he gave me this gift, and all I had to do was receive it. And, and a gift from God doesn't work any, any different. God doesn't expect anything from us but to receive it and to accept it freely. Oh, and we receive it by faith. We believe that he lived. We believe that he died for us. We believe that he rose again. Basically, we believe that he is who he said he is, and then he did what he said he did. And then he'll continue doing what he said he'll do in our lives. See, I think this is actually a huge stumbling block for many people to receiving Jesus Christ. Because we can't just fathom how that could be a free gift. Pastor Wayne, you don't know who I was. You don't know the things that I've done. That just can't be, that can't just be, I mean, I have to pay for that somehow, right? I mean, I have to do something for it. I mean, I at least have to walk some old ladies across the street or something. I mean, how can I make up for this, this stupid stuff that I've done? And, we, and that becomes a stumbling block because we can't fathom that, G, that God would give His Son for us for free, for no cost. But it's because He loves us. Matter of fact, it's only in that light that you can understand it, especially as a parent. You understand what you will do for your children. There's nothing that you would. You would give everything for them. When you love somebody, you'll, you'll take all kinds of stuff upon yourself to make sure that they're taken care of. And, and God is no different. If you know how to love like that, how much more do you think that he would know how to love? And it's hard for people because we're trained in this life. And actually, probably rightly so in most things. You know, if it's too good to be true, then it probably is. I'm telling my kids that all the time. My daughter thought she was going <laughs> to buy a Mustang for a penny or something on some website where you buy some. I'm like, love, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And I'm not even saying probably in this one it is. There's no way you're getting a Mustang for a penny. Man, but they, they want to believe so bad. I put that kind of faith in Jesus, you'll be all right. (laughs) But this is the one case where it's not too good to be true. It's definitely too good, but it is true. Amen? And the reality is, is like we mentioned earlier, that, you know, there's the argument that's made, how can a good God send anybody to hell? And the truth is, God is not sending anybody to hell. He's made provision for every single person. On this, all they have to do is receive this free gift. They just have to walk up and take it by faith, believe that he is who he said he is, 
and that he'd, he'll do what he said he'd do. It's that simple. And people are making the choice to not do that. They're afraid that, that something in their life is going to change. I remember talking to my sister about this once, and she was, uh, she was afraid. She didn't want to change. She didn't want to put her whole faith in Jesus because she didn't want to change who she was. And I'm like, I'm so thankful that I'm changed from who I was. I'm thankful that I'm, and you know me, you're thankful that I'm not who I was. But we're changed in the gospel. It is the power to, to do something that nothing else in this world can. We'll go ahead and end here as the, the bullet points of, of what the gospel actually is. You know, when we go into the world, we talked about the last couple weeks how we're called to share this with others. We're called to replicate. As a Christian, you're called to share the gospel and make other disciples, not converts, disciples. But when we do this, we need to make sure we're not rep- misrepresenting this to anyone. And the gospel really is simple. God made it easy so we could all understand it. Jesus lived a sinless life and he died for our sins. Because of that, we are forgiven for all of our sins. Even the worst thing that you've ever committed, it is forgiven in him. And then he rose again and as a result, we have a new life. That means that if we are risen up with him and we have his life inside of us, that means that we can finally stop living like we used to. Because that old man, that old person, he's dead and gone. And we have a brand new life that is capable of living sinless. And finally, when we're sharing this with others, we need to make sure they understand that this is a gift. They can't earn it. There's nothing that they can do to earn it. Amen? Amen. Let's go and stand to our feet.